in Genesis chapter 2, you pick it up in verse 8. Now you guys know the story. The Lord has created the heavens and the earth. He created the earth and he gave us some shape and some form. And then in verse 8, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. So God was a gardener. Yeah. I don't know if you like gardening. There's a, it's, you get dirty. And, but it's so cool to be able to do something and see life come out of the ground. So God's creative. He loves this. He, he, he planted a garden in the east. He probably did a little bit different than you and I do. <laughs> Plant, you know. I mean, he just spoke. He says, he planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put a man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Isn't that what God does? He plants, and he's creative, and he's having fun, and he's making things awesome. He's so creative. Have you ever just looked at a flower? I mean, just look, I mean, not like from 10 feet away. I'm talking about really looks like it's crazy what God did, and it's so creative and beautiful, but he also made it so that it was food that we could eat. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river water in the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into, into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. That gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx is also there. The name of the second river is Gishon, or Gihon. It's, it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are to eat. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. God makes man to walk with God. God makes man to take care of the land. God makes man to bring glory to God. And he puts a couple of trees there, and he says, you can eat from all of them. There's just this one. I don't want you doing that. It's all I ask. Just one command. Just don't eat that one. And what did the guy do? <laughs> well, actually, it was his wife. So women... You know, it's interesting, she went first and ate it, but it says that Adam was right there with her. <laughs> He's watching his wife, hey, look, she's eating from the tree. What was he doing? He wasn't leading his wife, and she certainly wasn't following. That's a whole other lesson we can get into. <laughs> Come to the marriage devotion, we'll get more of that. But guys, the, the plan of God was to bless them. The plan of God was for them to multiply and be fruitful and increase and fill the earth and subdue it. That was God's plan. The man and the woman came up with a different plan. Right there next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the tree of life. It's interesting, the tree of life is mentioned just seven times in the Bible. Three times in the book of Genesis and four times in the book of Revelation. The phrase tree of life is mentioned about five other times, but it's not re regarding the actual tree of life. There's different things that are a tree of life, if you will. But the tree of life right here was literally given to them so they can eat of it and live forever. Man and woman were originally created by God to live forever. You wonder how I look so young. I'm, I'm 103. <laughs> 
I found the tree of life. No. Amen. But when they didn't do God's will, they didn't fulfill God's will, and it wasn't, it wasn't overwhelming to not eat of that one tree, was it? It wasn't overwhelming. We have these thoughts like, oh, there's so many things God doesn't want me to do. It's just one thing. Don't do that. They did it, and he had to discipline them. You go on over to chapter 3. They sin. He has to take them out of the garden. He curses the grounds. He says, from then on, the man will have to work the ground from the sweat of his brow to survive, and the woman would have great pain in childbirth from that day forward. And in verse 20, it says, Adam named his wife Eve, Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished from them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. No more was man going to have the chance to walk with God forever, eat from the Tree of Life and have fellowship with him and do God's will. God said, no, you're banished. You're going to have to go and work the land, and you're going to suffer. There's going to be hardship because you brought sin into the world. But his dream for us has always been to walk with him and have eternal life. God's heart from the beginning was not to punish mankind. God's heart from the beginning was to save, to rescue, to be a friend of, to walk with, to strengthen the man, to give him a purpose, to help him live a life that was awesome and exciting, to have a beautiful, awesome family, and we screwed it all up. We chose to go our own way. God had a perfect plan. To this day, he has a perfect plan, but we go our own way. We ruin our chances at eternal life. It's what he wants to give to every one of us because our sin. We fall in love with our sin instead of God who gave us the ability to choose between him and sin. Today, where are you at in your relationship with God? Have you chosen your own way? Maybe you're a member of the church. You've chosen your own way this past week, and you're feeling the heat. You feel separated from God like Adam did after he committed the sin. He feels ashamed. He feels naked. He, he feels all these things that he didn't have to feel. God didn't make him to feel that God wanted to be close to him. Never was there a thought in God's heart to separate man from him. Maybe you're visiting today and your relationship with God has been on the fritz for a while. You're up and down, you're all around, you're trying this and trying that, but you're not really walking with him. I hope today you'll make a decision to really walk with God again and do it his way. He's got a beautiful plan for me and you. Beautiful plan. He loves you deeply. He believes in you. That fires me up that God believes in me. Let's go over to the book of Revelation now. We're going to pick it up in chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. 
give you a quick overview, the book of Revelation was written, written by the Apostle John. They tried to kill John. It didn't work, so they exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. While he's on the Isle of Patmos, he receives a revelation from Jesus himself. The Lord speaks to him and tells him how to take care of the churches in the province of Asia. There were at least seven churches there, or there were seven pillar churches there, then the first one being the church in Ephesus that oversaw all of the other churches in that province. They're in trouble. It's about the year 95, and there's great persecution. There's incredibly difficult things happening. Disciples are being killed. Disciples are being crucified. They're being fed to lions and dogs. Their children are being eaten, unless you proclaim Caesar as Lord. And so this book is written from the very heart of Jesus to save his people, to take care of his people, because at this point, the persecution was so much, the difficulties of life were so much, the sin was so prolific in the Roman Empire. Just to get up and live every single day was so challenging for anyone who was a disciple. The amount of sin in the Roman Empire is what brought its downfall. Historians will even tell you. Sin is what brought down that empire. And disciples, our brothers and sisters, were living in those days and trying to figure out how to survive. And by the sweat of their brow, they were working, trying to figure out how to survive. But after 30 years of trying and trying, they were starting to give up. And so Jesus speaks to John and says, I have a revelation for my churches in Asia, and I want to take care of them. And we get to read the words. It's an incredible book. There's a lot of imagery in here. But there's some very practical things also that I think will help us. And so let's pick it up in verse 1 of Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. So what we find in the book of Revelation is that God's heart is moved. He sees his people struggling. So he sends an angel to John, the one last remaining apostle. And he says, you're the hope for these people. I'm going to give you the message to give these people. So he literally sends one of his angels. Angel is the word angelou, or messenger. And through the scriptures, we normally see an angel comes in the form of a man from time to time, like the one in the garden, the big giant guy with a flaming sword. That was a little different kind of an angel right there. But also we find, you're going to see in just a moment, there's another type of angel that's talked about in the book of Revelation. But right here, the one that speaks to John, to say, I have a message for you. He's going to show him what's going to take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, verse 2, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. You've got to take to heart what is written because the time is near. You know, in the year 95, they thought every day, maybe Jesus is coming back because it's so hard. It's so difficult. There's so much temptation. It's so hard to survive. Sounds a lot like living in Miami, doesn't it? And yet here we are, living in the freest country in the world, blessed by God and able to do incredible things. I think this book is written to us as well. It says in verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Who's this? It's God. God is eternal. 
He is, he was, and he is to come. There's no beginning, no end. Are you with me here? And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. I just want to give you a quick insight that I got from studying this out the other day. All the time that I kept hearing the phrase that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, I felt a little uncomfortable. Weren't other people raised from the dead? I mean, just think of Lazarus in the New Testament. You think of some people in the Old Testament raised from the dead? And I was like, wait a minute, Jesus is not the firstborn from among the dead? And it made me feel all weird inside. Has ever had doubts about the Bible? Yeah. If you said no, you're lying. <laughs> I've had doubts, and I've had to work through them. I had to figure out what does the word say? What's really going on? And just the other day, I was reading this, and I realized, wait a minute. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead to live eternally. All the others, Lazarus rose from the dead, and then he died. <laughs> and he, he's, he, he wasn't the first from among the dead. And it struck me, what, Jesus is focused on the eternal. The flesh of Jesus didn't matter. The flesh was sacrificed for you and me, and that was it. The need was over, and now he lives forever. He is the firstborn from among the dead to live eternally. And the ruler, I love this, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You guys know who's really in charge? You ever thought about that? You know, my boss... Your boss isn't in charge. Your boss is a joker. Hopefully, well, some bosses are here, so sorry. <laughs> but compared to God, they're nothing. They're just someone you work for. I love this. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. And those who pierced him, even the ones who pierced him, who actually stuck the sword in his side or put the crown of thorns on his head, they're going to see him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the one that has inspired this book to be written so that the disciples in that time and in this time can find encouragement in how much he loves them. You know, right here, we find some interesting things. Now John's writing more personally in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, and I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, and his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like the bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. 
when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You know, it's interesting. In Matthew 16, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. But he holds the keys to death and Hades. Peter preached how to enter the kingdom of God, and you need to know it. And you need to live it. And you need to teach it. But you also need to understand that Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. At the end of the day, we're all going to die. Isn't that right? Yeah. Two things guaranteed, death and taxes. <laughs> we're all going to get taxed and we're all going to die. When are you going to die? Now we've had a lot of fun this morning. We sang a lot of songs and worshiped God and really enjoyed the fellowship. But I want you to stop for a minute and go, wait a second, when am I going to die? Not if. When? Now I want you to stop a minute and think about that. Are you right with God? Are you walking with him? Are you close to Jesus? Are you an obedient servant to him? Do you tell other people because it's your heart? Or have you become a fake Christian? Fake Christians don't make it. I want to be real. I want to walk with him. I want to do what he tells me to do. It's so hard. It's overwhelming sometimes. But you know what? That's why he writes books like this. So we can get our courage back. So we can go after it. Even this man writing this suffered so much. Eventually died of old age. One of the, the only apostle that didn't die from being martyred. But he lived his life for the Lord every day. You know, I look at this, and there's a couple of things that really strike me in chapter 1 that I want to share with you. It says in verse 1, is the revelation is being given, and he made it known by sending his angel to servant John. The first thing we see is that God's heart is to make his word known. That's his heart. From the beginning of time, we see in the book of Revelation, that, in the book of Genesis, that's his heart. All the way toward the end, we see in the book of Revelation, that's his heart. He wants to make his word known. So what does he do? He sent an angel to help them, to show them, to tell them his will, his messenger, so that they would hear. My question is, is that your heart? Is it your heart to make God's word known? If it's not, you don't have the heart of God, and you're in trouble spiritually. No one's down on you. You're not in trouble, but you got to change and have the heart of God. God loves people. This book is not written so that we could beat people in the head with it and condemn them. This book was not written so they would sit on a shelf and gather dust and you talk about, oh, that book that I used to read. This book was written so that we could share with other people. But if you're sharing with other people and you haven't dealt with your own heart, you're in big trouble. How are you really doing this morning? Understanding God's word in your life. 
Secondly, we find in verse 3, blessed is the one who reads the words and bless those who hear it and take to heart what is written. It's one thing to hear the word, but it's quite different to do it. Are you with me? If you're sitting here week after week and you're hearing the word of God, you should be super encouraged. Not because I'm such an incredible preacher. Because <laughs> I, I may or may not be. From week to week, you just never know what you're going to get. But because from the pulpit in this congregation, in every household in this congregation, every Bible talk that we have in this congregation, every time we get together, we talk about the word of God. And we don't talk about it just to say, hey, we talked about it. We talk about it so that we can obey it with a good heart. That's what he says, that those who have a heart will do what it says. This morning, have you taken the heart? You know, for me, many, many years I spent, I went to church. I even had scriptures memorized, but it wasn't in my heart. It was in my head. I knew a lot of things about the Bible. I knew a lot of things about God, but I didn't really know the Bible. I didn't really know God. Yesterday, Marcel and I were in a Bible study with an, an awesome young man and talked about the Word of God. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, He became flesh and lived among us. Jesus is the Word of God. Wait a minute. Every time I read this, I get to see a little piece of Jesus' heart? Exactly. This is Jesus speaking to you. Are you digging into the word? Are you meditating on the word? Are you memorizing the word? Is it something that's in your heart or is it just in your head? For many of us, it goes in one ear and right out the other. Wait, what did he say? I want to challenge you. Get into the word of God. It's, it's meant to affect your heart. It's meant to do surgery on your heart to get the sin out. Why? So that you can walk with God again and eat from the tree of life. That's what the Word of God is for. It is not intended to condemn us. Thank God, because He certainly has every right, doesn't He? Thirdly, we find, down in verse 5, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. This is my conviction reading this. Jesus focused on the eternal. I was focused on the temporary, raising from the dead, woo, to live in this flesh. Honestly, it's worthless. But to rise again, to live eternally, that's what Jesus was focused on. He wanted people to have eternal life. If he was so concerned about the flesh, wouldn't he have healed every single person on planet Earth when he walked? You guys ever thought about that? Why didn't Jesus heal everyone? It's not fair. Because that's not his purpose. That wasn't his heart. He healed a few people so that they would look to God. He healed a couple of people, very few people, if you read the pages. Actually, very few people were healed by Jesus. Why? Because that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was eternal. Are you focused on the temporary? Or are you focused on the eternal? When you meet a person, are you focused on how they look? Are you focused on the eternal? When you're driving down the street, in Miami, when you want to talk about what happens. I had to apologize to the Lord the other day for how angry I was at how people drive in Miami. You know why? I got so focused on that because I was focused on the flesh. 
I was focused on the temporary. I wasn't focused on the eternal. What if that person in the car that was acting like an idiot on their phone was rushed to the hospital because someone was sick? Right. I don't know. Who am I? I was focused on the wrong things. And actually praying about it later, it broke my heart. I was like, what is wrong with me? My poor wife has to deal with my, <laughs> my heart about that sometimes. But even worse, the Lord has to deal with my heart. I know it may seem a minor thing to you. But are you focused on the eternal? When we talk to people, can we stop and think differently about them? And go, are they going to heaven? Are they close to God or Jesus who holds the keys to death and Hades? Is he coming? He wants to give them life. Are you with me here? Today, are you focused on the eternal like Jesus was? The other thing I see in the second part of that verse in verse 5 is to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Amen. Do you believe that God loves you? Honestly, deep down, is it a conviction? Do you live like Jesus loves you? Do you respond like he loves you? Do you believe that he freed you from your sin? Or have you gotten back into it like a dog returning to its vomit? You guys ever seen that? That's nasty. Dog, and then he eats it. You're like... Hey, in this church, we talk about the real things, right? And then in the scriptures, that's compared. That dog eating that, that vomit is compared to a person who fell in love with God, but then goes back to the garbage of the world. He goes, it's like a dog eating vomit. You know, sometimes we play around and we get ourselves into sin and we convince ourselves, well, sin's kind of fun. <laughs> you ever thought that? Well, you know, sin is kind of fun. You ever done that? You ever kind of justified your sin? I feel, well, it was kind of fun. Really? After you leave all your friends and you're sitting at home by yourself, and you think about what you've done. You think about who you messed up. You think about what you did to yourself. Is it really fun? No way. We've got to be serious. It's like a dog returning to its vomit. This entire book was written to set us free from that. That's his heart because he loves us and set us free from our sins. How many of us live like we're enslaved to sin? And we call ourselves, I'm a Christian. Either you don't know what it means to be free or you've gone back to your old life. But he's talking to disciples here, disciples who are struggling, disciples who are going through difficult times, and he says to him who loved us, loves us, and has freed us from our sin by his blood. You take confidence in your forgiveness. So many years going to church, I was so insecure about what it meant to be forgiven. All alone, late at night, when no one's looking. Oh, at church, singing, praising, all this stuff. When I was all alone, I felt so insecure. I was scared to death of death. I was scared of the judgment of God because I knew that, that, that I wasn't living right. But also, I, I just didn't have confidence in salvation. I didn't know what it meant. Honestly, 
Is there a confidence in you? How do you know? Ask the person next to you today. Ask the person next to you. Not right now, but ask them, hey, am I confident in my salvation? And if they go, um, it's because you live insecure. It's because you live without confidence in your relationship with God. Many people live a life of shame because there's sin that's messing up their heart. There's shame. They're shameful. They try to cover it up with overacting or hiding away. Other people live with guilt. Even people call themselves Christians live guilty, guilty. Yes, yes, I'm, yes, and they're always the heads down. They're never a con there's never a confidence in them because their relationship with God has been made right, and they're eating from the tree of life. Hey, if you're eating from the tree of life, what have you got to be uh, insecure about? What have you got to worry about? Why hang your head in shame? Why give in to guilt? You're eating from the tree of life because you know you've been free. You know you're right with God, and there's a confidence in you that's growing. I don't care where you're at and all of that today. I want to encourage you. The possibility of walking with God is right there. I love my relationship with God. Without my relationship with God, I'm nothing. You wouldn't want to know me. And from time to time, when I'm not doing well spiritually, some of you don't want to know me. But I, I love my relationship with God. I literally, I've come to believe I don't have anything else. And when I'm walking with him in confidence like this, there's a joy. And then I want to live my purpose. And the last thing it says here in verse 6 is, what has he done? He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. You know, the thing here is, are you living your mission? He's made us to be a kingdom. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. A kingdom has a king, right? And a kingdom has subjects, right? If it's a good kingdom, all the subjects are very happy, <laughs> fired up. We've been made to be a kingdom. That's, that's so awesome. But a kingdom without a purpose at some point will fall. We've been made to be kingdom and priests. What's the job of a priest? What's a priest supposed to do? To make reconciliation between God and man. A priest of God is supposed to help people get to know God. It's supposed to help make peace. It's a mediator. That's what you and I in God's kingdom are made to be. You are made to be that. You aren't made to be anything else. If you're not living like a priest of God, trying to reconcile people to God in the church and out of the church, you're not living your purpose and your time will come, you'll give up. Yeah. A man or woman who doesn't live with a purpose is no reason really for living. Wow. When we live our purpose, guys, it's exciting. Yeah, it's exhilarating. You know, the other day we, we have this group called the LTP, the Leadership Training Program. And one of the young disciples, I think it was Damon, posted in there that that day he shared his faith with 34 people. I was like, what? That's awesome. And then Frank posted in there. Frank Hines posted in there, 41 people. And then I was reading and I was like, wait a second. Natasha just goes, yeah, today I shared my faith with 51 people. <laughs> I was like, what? What? Don't you mean this month? <laughs> no, Natasha, Frank, Damon, these people, they, they understand that they're a kingdom and that they're priests. 
They want to give what they have to other people. Yes, they have hardship. You, you should see it in the, in, the, in, the, in the group chat that we have. They talk about what they're struggling with. They talk about how difficult it was sometimes. They talk about how temptations hit them. They talk about how depressed they might have felt. And yet they keep fighting through because they understand who they are. They're finding confidence in their, in their salvation. They're finding confidence in the blood of God. And they understand that they're a kingdom of priests. And to see the church in Miami growing like it is is so exciting to me. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4. He's just, he says, yet I hold this against you. Man, those are the words you just don't want to hear. You ever have a review with your boss? It's like you did this good, you did this great, I'm so proud of this, but I have this one thing. You're like, <laughs> you know, look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden, seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. Does that scare you? God goes, I know your deeds. Like, oh. Yeah, he knows your deeds. <laughs> and he knows mine. But it is interesting, it says, to the angel. And if you see the little sub note down there, it's, Messenger. This is the other type of angel, if you will, in the book of Revelation. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. My personal conviction, it is my opinion. You can argue if you want, but I'm going to give you my opinion. I don't think Jesus spoke to John to speak to an angel. Are you with me? Jesus spoke to the angels whenever he felt like it. Jesus spoke to John to speak to the angel of the church at Ephesus, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, the leader. The one who was sent to Ephesus to preach the word of God. That's the messenger of the church in Ephesus. Jesus does not need to speak to John to speak to an angel. This is the leader in God's church. The leader needs to do his job. I carry the weights of what happens in this congregation. It's a heavy weight. Sometimes I feel like it's too much. Other times days go by and not one thing bad happens. I'm like, yes! But at the end of the day, I'm responsible for where you go and what you do. Ultimately, you're responsible for your relationship with God. But I'm the one who is sent. I'm the messenger for now. Maybe later it'll be someone else, but for now I'm the messenger. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of scary. It's kind of like, whoa, what does that mean? I'm the messenger. The church in Miami? But the church in Ephesus had done so many great things, but after 30-some-odd years, they were starting to get a little far from God. So back to verse 4, he says, Yet I hold this against you. They've done all these great things. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You know, it's interesting, over the years, different people have said, you lost your first love, and that became kind of the mantra among, among many people. Wow. The Bible does not say that. You lose your keys. You might lose your cell phone, but you don't lose love. Why? Because love is not a feeling. Love is a decision, and love is a commitment. 
So what Jesus says to them, listen, I'm concerned because something's happened. You haven't lost it. No, no, no. You've forsaken your first love. Who is the first love of the church? Jesus, the Lord himself. That's our first love. Why? Because he first loved us. Are you with me here? He says, yet I have this against you. I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. What does the lampstand represent? Being one of God's churches. If he takes the lampstand away, he says, you're no longer my church. He says, unless you repent and do the things you did at first, you're not my church anymore. This is a stark warning to people that had been in the battle for 30 some odd years. They're starting to give up. They're starting to back down. Their hearts have gotten hard. The world's come too much after them. And instead of walking with God and staying in his word and being a priest to the people, they had forsaken their first love. You know, you got to ask yourself, well, what did they do in the beginning? In Acts chapter 19, we find the church in Ephesus is planted. Paul stays there for a period of time. In two years' time, the church in Ephesus plants Six churches. What did they do at first? They were evangelistic. They were on fire for God. They went after it. They sacrificed. They poured themselves out. They maybe gave what many people would say was too much. And Jesus just says, listen, you forsake me. Just do what you did at first. Love the people around you. Love the cities around you. Plant new churches. Go after it. Do whatever it takes. These people have a chance to be saved if, Ephesus, if you would do your job. If you'll stay close to me and remember that you're forgiven. And remember that you're a kingdom of priests to reconcile people to God. You know, it's exciting to think what we can do. It's exciting. You know, not too long ago, Isaac shared his faith with David. David started studying the Bible goes through some wrestling with God, has to figure out what it means to really be a disciple, has to make a decision about leaving everything to walk with God. He's risking his reputation. He's risking his career. But his heart is for God first. And so today he's getting baptized as a disciple. It's just the beginning. He's going to have the chance to eat from the tree of life. But his role will now be to help other people eat from the tree of life. It's interesting what he says when he closes this out, talking to the church in Ephesus. In verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Woo! So it's possible to overcome, amen? Yeah. I can actually overcome all my sinful stupidity. All of my lack of character, all the bad habits that have plagued me from time to time, I can overcome, and so can you. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where's the tree of life? Look in Revelation chapter 22. You guys with me here? In verse 1, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing down from the throne of God and from the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Whoop, there it is. It's in heaven. Wait a second. Wasn't it in the Garden of Eden? Where'd it go? At some point, God goes, it can't be here. Angel, go home. And he puts the tree in heaven. You can take it figuratively. You can take it literally. Bottom line is, the tree of life is in heaven with God. It's kind of cool. He says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding his fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And its servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night and they will not need the light of the lamp or the sun. For the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. You know, right here we find that the tree of life is in heaven. So there's only eternal life with God if you're with him in heaven. You know, maybe you take this figurative, figuratively or like many people say, oh, it's just a myth. No, I believe it's true. Jesus believed in it, therefore I believe in it. All I know is I want to eat from the tree of life. The, the, the cool image that's there is that God and the Lamb are on the throne, and there's a river flowing out of the throne, and then the river is the, is the river of life, right? Who's the water of life? Jesus himself. And, and then over the river, it says there's the tree, and it's on both sides of the river. How does that happen? The tree is so big, it now covers the river, and the river flows through it. And every single month, the tree bears fruit, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. This is a beautiful image of what God's church is supposed to be like. We look at heaven, and we have to imitate God's church. He needs to imitate what's in heaven. We become a tree of life, not the tree of life but a tree of life for the people in our city. Are you living like a tree of life? You know, the title of the lesson today is Be the Giving Tree. We can't be the tree of life, right? There's only one of those. But we can be like a tree of life. We can be like a giving tree. I have five goals that I want to put before the church in Miami for this year. You guys ready? We'll have them all written out for you in a couple of days, and, and we can pray for them together. But here's what God put on my heart. I talked to some of the leaders about it. Number one, in 2019, we're going to worship God with reverence and awe. I don't want my worship of God to be in vain. I want to worship God with reverence and awe. What does that mean? We need to have excellence and purity and in our relationships. We want each member in the church to be financially stable and helping other people. We want to make sure that every house church, the North, the campus, and the Miami house church are an integral part of every Sunday and Wednesday worship as we work together to make our worship of God better. Of course, Sunday and Wednesday, but during the week, every single house church, we, we want to be able to worship God in reverence and awe. We want to promote and put forward what God has given us in our band called Renatus. 
We have great dreams about what they can do. Right now, they're doing great things. You just got a permit to play music over there in, in Miami Beach. They want to use it to help raise money for the church. Praise God. But also, as you notice today, they're unbelievably talented. And they're doing that, they're doing that for God. Secondly is we want to make God's name known in Miami. What does that mean? Every member evangelistically focused, understanding that you're a priest of God and becoming effective and fruitful. Secondly, we want every Bible talk in the city to be able to bear fruit monthly like the tree of life. Amen? Amen. In this city, there are about 7 million people. I want to challenge the Miami church this year to face-to-face, one-on-one, share your faith with 112,000 people this year. What? If each of us will talk to at least 20 people a week, by the end of this year, we will have shared our faith with 112,320 people. But here's what's interesting. There's 7 million people in the metropolitan area. If we go at that pace, it'll only take us 62 years to evangelize Miami. Aren't you encouraged? But of course, in 62 years, the population of Miami would be about 25 million. So when I first started doing that, I was so excited. We're going to share with 100,000 people. Wait a second. That's so lame. (laughs) So we've got to find new ways to reach out to people. I want you to make a commitment. Everywhere you go, every place you you get to, to, to talk to someone, share your faith. Talk to them. Tell them what's going on. You guys have all heard of McDonald's, right? McDonald's evangelized Miami. Matter of fact, McDonald's evangelized the world. What if we have that heart? Now, we're not serving hamburgers. We're helping people find a relationship with God. So if as a congregation we make a commitment, I'm going to get my my faith out to every single person I can. I'm going to be passionate about it. I'm not going to do it out of guilt. I'm not going to do it because someone called me. I'm going to do it because it's my heart. It's what I want to do. Yes, from time to time, someone's going to ask you, how's that going? Amen? We need to motivate each other and spur one another on, don't we? But in one year's time, if we just do that, we only reach 100,000. So the next part is we want to find effective online ways through cyber evangelism. You know, we're praying and hoping that this year we can appoint Chris Green a cyber evangelist. In the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of weeks, we've met a few people that have great vision for us. And they're not part of the church. Like, hey, I have a great idea that's going to help your church. I'm like, what is it? Hey, you need to do this thing online. I go, what? So I talked about it. I'm like, seriously? There's so much we can do. Here's the thing. I'm not talking about mass evangelism just to get a bunch of people. That's not what we're doing. We are making disciples. We're helping people have a real relationship with God. I just don't want to fill the pews and have a big group, although that would be awesome. We're helping people become true disciples so that they too can be priests. But if this year we can make a decision that we're going to get our name out, 
to 150,000 more people online. How awesome would that be? You guys think we can do that? Number three, I want each member to embark on personal transformation that honors God. What do I mean? I want to challenge you daily to meditate and memorize scripture. Meditate on the word of God. Memorize it. Think about it. Let it become part of your heart and have deep quiet times every single day. I want to make sure that this transformation process happens because we're having weekly discipleship times. We're talking to each other about how it's going, what's going on. We talk to each other daily and, and really get our hearts out there. The Bible says encourage one another daily. Let's do that. It's not a guilt thing. It's a relationship thing. In our personal transformation, I want to see us grow visibly in our confidence and our security and our effectiveness. What do I mean? We need a lot more people that can do public speaking and preaching. We need disciples in the church to get better jobs and not just feel stuck. You're not stuck. You're not stuck at all. And to have influence in this city. The last few weeks, I've been able to meet some of the most influential people in Miami. I'm blown away by what God is doing. And then... On our personal transformation, I would like to see us have more dating, engaged, and married couples. Now, it is interesting to me, the one you got most fired up about. Let me ask you something. If that's what you're most fired up about, what do you think it is in Miami that people are the most fired up about? Having relationships that matter. Yeah, there's some perverted, warped people that want to hook up. That's garbage. But you know what people really want? They want unfailing love. That's what they really want. And the Miami church is a congregation that can offer that to people. So if you're, you're going to be a part of this church, I want to encourage you, st just stay close to God, amen? And then look around the congregation, our congregations around the world, and find someone to date. Amen? Brothers, snap to it. Sisters, say yes. But see, when it's done right, if it's done right within the will of God, it becomes an engaged couple like Jacob and Hannah. You know, I'm sure the time that they've been dating and now engaged, they've, they've probably made a few mistakes. But you know what's amazing? They've stayed pure. They've done it right, and it honors God. And so when they get married here in just a couple of weeks, it's going to be a celebration. I would like to see a celebration for a couple more of you. Amen? You know, when I say that, uh, if we can help capture that excitement that you have about relationships, it's what people in Miami want. And we can learn how to give that to them and show them how to have a great relationship with God. There is not a room in this city that's big enough to hold the people that'll come. Number four, I want us to be extraordinarily generous and plunder the world for the kingdom. What do I mean? We have a missions contribution coming up in May. It's a couple of months away, but our missions contribution goal is everyone got your seatbelts on? You ready? You ready? It's only $156,000. Yeah! 
that's what's going to plant churches like Kathmandu and Kolkata. Are you with me? We actually need to raise more than that. So maybe that stresses you out. I didn't ask you to write a check for 156000 <laughs> Although if you could, see me after church, I'll be right up here. Are you with me here? But we, we need to do that. This is what it's going to take to support our missionaries this year in these church plantings. But also on our weekly contribution. I hope your seatbelts are still on. We're one of the most generous churches in the movement. We give about $50 a week. Every person, on average, that's what people give in this congregation. I want to ask you to raise it by $20 a week. $20? I only make $20 a week. Oh, I mean. Here's the deal. I, I, let's, be, let's be very clear here. Some in the congregation would really struggle to give an extra 20 a week. Others could give 50 a week and wouldn't even think about it. So among our congregation, we're going to talk to each other by the end of January. We're going to work on it, and on average, I want to see us raise our contribution by $20 a person. Why? Why? What does that do? That allows us to put a couple more people on staff. Amen? Why is that important? The church grows faster and the church is healthier when there's more people working full-time. And so that's what we want to do. I want to challenge you to live on 25% less. Now, Helen and I have been working on that for a couple of weeks, and it's been very challenging to figure it out. We're not quite there, but we're trying to get to a place where we can live on like 25% less. Why? So that we can give more. So today we made a decision. We're going to give $40 a week more. That's my decision and Helen's decision. We feel great about it, but we had to really think differently about what we're doing. Can you imagine? Another goal here is that every member is debt-free and properly saving. So Frank and I have met a few people that have ideas on how to help us do that. So in time, later this year, we're going to have workshops on helping people learn how to deal with their finances properly. I want us to feel free, guys. We shouldn't be trapped with the things the world is trapped with. Amen? And then the last thing on that note is, is uh, I'm in the process of forming a corporation called the Tree of Life. The Tree of Life Corporation will have five branches. You like that? The leaves of life to heal the nations. That'll be how we work with, with mercy and raise money to help mercy. The river of life is the source where the tree got its source from, and so that's going to be us working with the community to help us raise money. The roots of life, we can go on. The, the seeds of life, and there's even going to be the stump of life. You know, once a tree is used up, what you got left is a stump. But amazingly, it's still useful. So we're working on some business ideas Outside, it's just for fundraising and to help us with our mercy and our, and our mission's work. But pray for that. It's an idea that's come about. I'm very excited about what's happened already. After, as I started forming this group, an individual came to me and said, listen, I want 
You see, what would you do if I gave you this sum of money, a large sum of money? I said, well, I'd immediately hire four more people. Immediately. And then I would have them work about 10 to 20 hours a week on fundraising so that it would take some of the pressure off the congregation. And he goes, okay, I'll give you the money. I was like, are you serious? Guys, God's opening doors. Because he wants the Miami church to be a tree of life for the metropolitan area. Pray that that comes through. It's, you know how it is, the check's not cashed. So pray. And let's see what we can do. I would like to hire four people as soon as possible if that actually comes through. And number five, I want us to grow numerically and geographically. I am praying that we will see a Bible talk in every city. In Miami, Dade County, and Broward County, and Palm Beach County. Now, that won't happen in 2019, but how far can we get in 2019? I don't believe you can control the results, but you can control what you do every day. So if we make a decision to actively go after our community and help love people and be an example, you're going to be amazed at how many new Bible talks start. And so with that in mind, I'm, I'm praying that the Miami church doubles this year. We need to figure out how to grow numerically and geographically so that we can support and inspire the Sages World Sector, especially we need to encourage the church in Atlanta. We need to get ready for the church planting in Kathmandu, Nepal. We need to prepare and get ready to support the work in Kolkata, India. And I want to ask you guys to work with me so that by 2023 we can plant the church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There is a book written by Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree. This is a little synopsis of the book. It says, in, in his childhood, the boy enjoys playing with the tree, climbing her trunk, swinging from her branches, and he carves me and tea on the tree, or me and tree, into the bark. He eats the apples. However, as the boy grows older, he spends less and less time with the tree and tends to visit her only when he wants material items at various stages in his life are not coming to the tree alone, such as one time he brought his lady friend to the tree and he called, carved me and YL, her initials, in the tree. In an effort to make the boy happy at each of these stages, the tree gives him parts of herself which he can transform into material items such as money from her apples, a house from her branches, and a boat from her trunk. With every stage of giving, the tree was happy. In the final pages, both the tree and the boy feel the sting of their respective giving and taking nature. When only the stump remains for the tree, including the little carving, me plus T. She's not happy. At least in the moment. The boy does finally return as a tired elderly man to meet the tree once more. She tells him she's sad because she can't provide him anything else. No shade, no apples, or any material like in the past. He says, all I want is a quiet place to sit and rest, which the tree, being just a stump, gladly provides. And the tree was happy. That's disciples. We give. We give. We give. We get used up. And we give some more. But that's what we're called to be. You're literally called to be 
a tree of life. Today, I want to challenge you to make the decision to be a giving tree. Miami Church, I love you guys.